0: Hello, this is Sean Mobley, the host of the Flight Deck podcast. Like many nonprofits across the country, the Museum of Flight has been severely impacted by the outbreak of COVID-19. We haven't traditionally used the podcast as a platform to make and ask for financial contributions to the museum, but in these unprecedented times, we would like to make an appeal to those who have a capacity to give right now. Maybe you give because you value what you've learned on the flight deck and want to keep hearing it in the near future. Maybe you give because you appreciate the programming the Museum of Flight's Education Department is developing and implementing as I record this to make sure kids across the country have access to learning opportunities while schools across the country are closed. Maybe you give because you have a great memory from a trip to the museum, whatever reason We want to hear it, and we want to thank you. You make this podcast possible. You make this museum possible now more than ever. To make a contribution, please visit museumofflight.org slash podcast and click the support the podcast button. Again, that's museumofflight.org slash podcast and click the yellow support the podcast button. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the show. You may think you know the Museum of Flight, but do you really? Most museums have about 1% of their collection on display at any time. In this four-episode mini-series of The Flight Deck, we'll be looking at the extremes of our collection, four artifacts that tell amazing stories and stand out in unique ways.
1: It was uh, an absolute joy to track down this little mystery from our, our collection.
0: Over the course of these episodes, we'll go behind the scenes at the Museum of Flight's collection. We've got a lot of rare and unique materials that you won't find anywhere else. To explore our smallest artifact.
2: I kind of laugh because when they were like, yeah, it's, it's really small. And I'm like, oh, well, how small could it be?
0: Our biggest artifact.
3: It's the heart and soul of the museum and our campus, in my mind. Our
1: youngest artifact. It's intended to open the door to s- space tourism.
0: And our oldest artifact. I see an item that is in pretty darn good shape, even considering its age. Along the way, we'll talk to the Museum of Flight's experts about how they take care of all the stuff we have.
3: When I tell people that I'm the director of collections, people usually think that means that I spend my days asking for money, that I am a debt collector.
0: And bring in voices from outside the museum to help peel back the layers of these artifacts' stories.
4: We get a chance to fly items that are just solely ours to then return to people when I got back. So that they would have like this memorabilia that went to space.
0: I'm your host Sean Mobley, and this is the Museum of Flight's collection. This is your collection. Curious yet? Then let's get started. Everyone who comes in contact with it remembers their first time seeing it.
3: I saw it in the early years of of working here, and I remember just thinking, "Is this really?" is this really something is this really like part of our collection because it was just so it's just so tiny you just don't imagine that it's actually an artifact
2: i kind of laughed because when they were like yeah it's it's really small and i'm like how small could it be and then they hand me a plastic bag and i don't quite see it and then i see it because it's at the bottom of the plastic bag and it's smaller than a grain of rice
0: in today's episode of the flight deck we're kicking off a four-part mini-series looking at the four extremes of our collection, the artifacts which are the oldest, youngest, biggest, and smallest. And our smallest artifact is so small, as Sarah Frederick, the museum's collection manager, explains, we can't figure out how to put it on display.
5: It's just too small. (laughs) We briefly talked about trying to get it out there um, in our most recent refresh of the Apollo exhibit, but the magnification that would be required for it would be tricky to implement through a uh, exhibit case.
0: Okay, we've talked about how small this thing is, but what exactly is it? That's right, the smallest artifact in the Museum of Flight's collection is an elephant.
1: The smallest uh, object in our collection is this little carved elephant that is Uh, Only about a millimeter and a half across. That's Jeff
0: Nunn, the museum's adjunct curator for space history and part of our in-house exhibit development team.
1: I love tiny objects with really big stories. This really is an exemplar of that sort of thing within our collection.
0: I knew I had to see this elephant with my own eyes, so our collections manager, Sarah... Hello. Hello took me into one of the museum's collection storage areas to check it out. So we are in the, what do you call this space? I or call what is this, this called? this
5: um, the Red Barn Collection Storage Area.
0: There, in the dark, cool basement of the museum, amongst rows of shelving stacked with models, boxes, and trunks stretched out from wall to wall and out of sight around a corner, at a table nestled between an intricate architectural model made decades ago to showcase the concept for the Museum of Flight's campus on one side and a giant clock carved out of an airplane propeller on the other, Sarah showed me my quarry.
5: In that, we have our first layer of uh, archival plastic bags.
0: This is like a Russian nesting doll, yes. just bags and bags, bags and bags and boxes and boxes.
5: We can find it. All right, and then now we're, we've are we gotten to the tiny bag that holds the tiny elephant.
0: So small. And it's so small. As I squinted to try and bring the atomic-sized elephant into the limited focus range of my woefully inadequate eyes, it was easy to imagine why Sarah went into a mild panic the first time she went to retrieve the artifact.
5: And it's, you know, we have our uh, work tables and storage carts lined with white ethafoam, so if you had... Like I did, picked up the bag and then set it onto. Oh wow! The white background—you can't even. It gets completely it's lost. Completely lost. So um, yeah, yeah, it can be a little. Was a little shocking the first time, but now I know what to look for. It
0: is so tiny. May, may I hold it? Yes. Thank you. Throughout this mini-series, I'm going to try something new for the flight deck. I want to take you along with me as I explore these topics through the corridors of the backstage of the museum and out into the world. To do this a few times each episode, I'm going to pause and give you a phone number you can text and a keyword to send to it to get a photo or a video or something tied to what we're talking about. And I'd like to start that here. Since this elephant is not on display, I want to bring it right to you. And trust me when I say, (laughs) you gotta see this thing, (laughs) the image on the cover of this episode of the podcast does not do this artifact justice. You just can't tell how small it is. So if you want to see a photo of the elephant, text the word elephant to 206-487-7090. That's elephant to 206 7090, and you'll get a link texted back to you within a minute or so that'll lead you to a photo that I took of the elephant next to a few other everyday objects for scale. It takes a minute or so for the response to get back to you, so just be a little patient. And don't worry if you didn't get the phone number if you're driving or something, we've included it in the show notes so you can look it up later. And listen up for future keywords throughout this mini-series. So why does the Museum of Flight have a tiny ivory elephant carving? Well, this particular elephant has been to space. Back to Jeff Nunn for more information.
1: This has been a mystery uh, in our collection for a long time and the donation paperwork says it was carried by Apollo 11 command module pilot, Michael Collins, on the Apollo 11 mission in the command module uh, flying around the moon.
0: This elephant took a galactic trip in astronaut Michael Collins's personal kit on the Apollo 11 mission. Orbiting the moon while down on the lunar surface, Neil Armstrong made his famous giant leap. Going back to the earliest days of the space program, astronauts have had the opportunity to bring small personal items to space.
1: And this goes all the way back to the days of Apollo at the very least. I think they probably also had them on the Gemini missions. I don't know if they could have fit anything in the Mercury missions. Basically each astronaut is given a very weight and size restricted uh, allotment to bring personal effects. And this could be a mix of things that they might want with them on the mission as uh, sort of uh, personal comfort items, that sort of thing.
0: I reached out to our contacts at NASA to ask them about astronauts personal kits. And their response was pretty straightforward across the board. They had nothing to say, because NASA stays out of it. It's personal. So instead, I caught up with someone who had personal experience. We
4: get a chance to fly items that get to, that are just solely ours, and then items that have a connection to us that will probably be more public.
0: That's Dottie Metcalf-Lindenberger, a former NASA astronaut who spent time on the International Space Station.
4: We get a small volume in whatever vehicle we're on, or in the case of of um, ISS astronauts, sometimes their stuff has to fly ahead of them or behind them on a cargo
1: vehicle.
0: As the size and efficiency of spacecraft changed, so did the astronauts' personal kits.
1: I know some of the shuttle astronauts and station astronauts have have brought stuff like musical instruments and the like, which are now gradually building out an orchestra on, on space station. Wait,
0: what? An orchestra orbiting the earth?
4: Oh yeah, it's so awesome. Naoko, on my flight, they had a miniature kato. It's a stringed instrument and uh, she played it in a kimono and it it just was really neat. It was like really special. But there's been a whole lot of instruments. There's a keyboard. Uh, I, I goofed around on that a little bit while I was there. There's been flutes, bagpipes.
0: Because their personal kits are very limited in their size and weight capacity, It says something about the astronauts of today that so many have chosen to dedicate so much of their kits to ferrying musical instruments to the ISS. A
4: lot of us are engineers and scientists, but the art piece has fueled us, and music is um, a piece of that art, and as we know, music is a language, and music is mathematical, and so I thought it was really neat that all this variety of instruments, but you saw that a lot of people are tied to music that flew in space.
0: If you want to see a film clip of astronaut Kiel Lindgren playing those bagpipes while hurtling around the Earth at five miles per second, text the word bagpipes to two zero six four eight seven seven zero nine zero. Again, the word bagpipes Instruments on the ISS are an impressive feat and show just how far we've come from the days of the Apollo program when astronauts were allotted a very small amount of space for their kits. But going back to the ivory elephant, why that? Why did Michael Collins have this minuscule elephant and Where did it come from? Anyone who looks at this thing has to marvel at the craftsmanship it took to create and certainly wonder how the heck someone carved a sculpture so small and why they would do that in the first place. The answers have been a bit of a mystery for the Museum of Flight for years.
1: It was accessioned into the museum's collection fairly early on. The date in the accession number says it was added to the collection in 1988. So at that time, the museum was very young and our record keeping was not nearly as robust as it is today. So we didn't have a lot of additional uh, information.
0: In the search, we reached out to both Michael Collins himself, who did confirm for us that he indeed carried the elephant and to Mark Armstrong, one of Neil Armstrong's sons.
1: That lit off some recognition for Mark. And he mentioned that his mother had something that also had these small white carved elephants. And he described this little container with a stopper. And then when you pulled the stopper out, it was full of these really tiny carved white elephants.
0: A lot of people don't realize it, but being a historian is very much like being a detective, piecing together clues from different sources, often contradictory sources, trying to get to the heart of a research question. So now Jeff had evidence that multiple Apollo 11 astronauts, including Neil Armstrong, the first human to step foot on the moon had some of these elephants and knew that they came from a set of multiple minuscule pachyderms all kept in some sort of container. Armed with these leads, Jeff put on his detective hat to begin investigating.
1: I started looking up, okay, containers full of elephants, bottles full of elephants. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, like figuring out what the Google search terms I needed to, to, to input. And then I stumbled on what was called a manjati kuru, or a Hindu lucky bean.
0: It turns out there's a tree prevalent in the southwest regions of India, commonly called the acacia coral, or simply known as the bead tree, whose distinctive red seeds, or manjati have a prominent place in the Hindu culture of that part of the country.
1: There's a particular practice where they get hollowed out and then filled with tiny ivory or or other carvings of elephants or other animals significant to to Hindu mythology and then stoppered with a a slightly larger one. And the basic belief is that each of the, the elephants inside represents a wish or Alternately, I've heard that the animals, if you have multiple different types of animals, can lend the strength of that particular animal to the bearer of that creature.
0: Jeff had a pretty good hunch, but like any good detective, he needed to confirm his findings.
1: This led to a follow-up conversation with Mark Armstrong, where we I sent him some photos of these these manjari kudu, and he said, yes, that is exactly what my mom had, and it's very likely that this might also be something similar to what Mike Collins had. Some more research led to a, a book in the museum's library. I actually managed to find a reference to Mike Collins talking about this in his personal preference kit. And there, there's a, a book where, that has a passage talking about what he carried with him. And it confirmed that he had this little red bean that someone who is a member of the ground crew or someone who he worked with at NASA had given to him as a way of carrying a bunch of small objects that they could then give out to to folks that they worked on the, the program with. So in the museum's collection, we have one of those elephants, one of those wishes carried aboard the Michael Collins Manjari Kuru beam.
0: The fascinating backstory Jeff has uncovered about this elephant for the podcast makes the artifact an even richer storytelling opportunity for the Museum of Flight. But, as I've already said, Its size makes it almost impossible to display.
3: You do see things like that often on display, um, you know, with a magnifying glass in front of it. We just haven't found the right format in which to showcase it. Amy
0: Heydrich is the director of collections here at the museum. And as she explains, we have a duty as a museum to make sure our collection is available to the public, whether it's an artifact on display Or not. We do have to sometimes weigh
3: the risk of displaying things like that that are so incredibly unique that we only have one of in the collection. We don't always display some of those things, but we're happy to talk about it, we're happy to show it to people, we're happy to make sure that we're uh, talking about it, but it's not always the most ideal artifact to be displaying.
0: You already know from the introduction of this episode that the vast majority of just about any museum's collection is not on display, but that doesn't mean that the rest of the collection is hidden or hoarded like some greedy dragon's treasure. We,
3: as uh, stewards of the collection, we don't want to just keep things under lock and key and in storage where we're the only ones that get to look at it. We want to be able to share what we have in these amazing um, resources and objects and research materials and things that can be helpful. We need to find ways to get that out
0: there the museum already has multiple efforts underway to do just that. Over
3: the course of the past two years, we've increased our access to the collection in a variety of different ways. We have an extensive digital collections website that has thousands and thousands of photographs, documents, all manner of 2D items from our collection, Uh, there will soon be 3D objects from our collection. We also have our oral histories going up online as well. So we've got audiovisual materials, so we're going to continue to expand that. Additionally, you're able to search through our collection, our archival materials and our library collections. We have those catalogs available online. And so it's all about making sure that people are aware of what we have, that our collection collection is um, the term that they kind of use in the field is like our collection is discoverable. So you can
0: Google and we might actually be a result that comes up. Getting the word out is key. And the Museum of Flight uses a variety of methods, advertising on our website, programming for the public and for our membership base. This, This podcast for several years now has been a tool that the museum has used to get the collection out there into the public. Even our, our volunteers, for example, our docents. If they're talking to an average visitor who just walked in the door on a regular day and seems to be interested in learning more about a topic, they'll tell that visitor that they can check out the collection over in our research center. And this is all because the museum has an obligation to make every artifact accessible to individuals who want to see them, to research them, to learn from them even an object, yes, as minuscule as the elephant. And for stuff like the elephant, we've got a number of processes in place to make sure that even tiny pachyderms don't get misplaced, as Sarah Frederick explains.
5: So we have a kind of museum-specific database that we use um, to track all of our objects. Every object in the collection has its own individual object number which we use to track things internally they are physically tagged with it in some manner Um, in the elephants instance because it's so teeny tiny it has a big paper tag (laughs) that goes with it um, that we keep in its enclosure so then once things are assigned their number then we catalog them into the into our database um, and that tracks kind of basic information a basic physical description of it measurements um what condition it's in at the time of Cataloging. And then we also track its location in there. So that's every location, its permanent storage location, if it's being moved to the digitization lab, if it's being moved upstairs to the gallery for its photo shoot, things like that. Just so if somebody's moving something and then later that day they're like, oh, I'm out of here. I'm moving to. France, or something. Whoever comes in next will be able to kind of pick up the pieces of the puzzle and track stuff down.
0: Karen Bean is a digitization specialist in the Museum of Flight's collections department, one of the many staff who've been working diligently over the past few years on the digitization projects Amy mentioned a few moments ago.
2: I take collections. Um, we have a kind of a queue that we have set up based off of what is. Important to the museum right now, or what's high risk for deterioration? Focusing on things that the museum is is focusing on. So this right now, it's World War II. I've digitized just about eleven World War II collections in the last year.
0: Digitizing artifacts for a museum's collection isn't a simple matter of snapping a photo or. Sticking a document on a copy machine and pressing the scan button.
2: I grab a collection. I start by looking at the metadata or looking at the finding aid, seeing what is important about the collection, determine what's going to be digitized. Scan as many things as I can scan on a flatbed scanner. Photograph the things that are either too large, too fragile, or three-dimensional. Once we have uh, digital reproduction, I create a metadata record, which is basically a detailed description and key subject terms and ways for people to be able to find the files online when they're searching through our digital repository, which has a ton of the collections now up online that people can search for.
0: Karen has one of those jobs that people who just love to learn all day would love to have.
2: I do a lot of research, so I'm identifying aircraft people, places, anything that's identifiable within there. So I am actually have a really good research background. I'm able to identify the aircraft on my own. Occasionally, I'll have to ask for help from one of our curators or curator Maritai. It's a lot of puzzling, and which is kind of the fun, and also helps get a better story of the individual person's collection and who they are, which is really fun. I think I get more involved with the collections than most of the collection staff do because I am with them sometimes for months on end, getting down to the the item level, which is really great.
0: When tasked with taking a photo of the elephant, Karen had to get creative.
2: Someone had asked me to attempt to photograph it uh, so that they could use it, and I don't think they also grasped how small it was. <laughs> I had to kind of wing it when I got it because I didn't actually know. <laughs> I was going to pull this off, because honestly, you need a microscope with a camera attached to it to really get a good photograph of this thing, um, which we don't have here.
0: When cameras failed her, she turned to a simple alternative.
2: I actually ended up grabbing a black sheet of paper and very delicately, not, yeah, I took it out of the bag and placed it on the scanner, my flatbed scanner, and put the black paper behind it so that you could actually see it, because most scanners have a white backing, and so you just wouldn't see it.
0: The elephant is never removed from its bag. Earlier in the episode when I asked if I could hold it, I was referring to the baggie, not the elephant itself. But in order to get a clean image, Karen would have to take the sculpture out of its container. She took every possible precaution to make sure the elephant didn't vanish accidentally in the process. One sneeze, one slip, and this amazing artifact might be lost forever. Blending in with the floor tiles or mixing with particles of dust and vacuumed away.
2: That was really stressful. It definitely was making sure none of the HVACs were running in the space. Really keeping a confined space, so only taking it out when it was over the scanner, leaving the plastic bag on the scanner in a different area, and really just... As quickly as possible and back into the bag just so as to not in any way lose that and, and I'm actually happier that it was done on a scanner, which is a pretty small enclosed space, as opposed to trying to put it like on a studio backdrop or something along those lines where it could easily get lost quicker.
0: The scan that Karen created is the cover image for this episode of the podcast. If you want to peek behind the scenes, text the word digitize to two zero six. 487 that's digitized to two zero six four eight seven seven zero nine zero, and you'll get a photo texted back to you showing some of the setup in our digitization lab photos are one thing but nothing quite replaces being in the presence of any artifact whether it's a tiny elephant that's orbited the moon or the first ever Boeing 747, or a poppy flower that we found pressed between the pages of the centurial journal of a World War I soldier in our archives. That's why museums like the Museum of Flight work hard to make it abundantly clear that their collections are open to the public, whether, like the 747, it's an artifact on display, or whether it's like the elephant or the poppy, that the items are in storage. And so we want to make sure that people,
3: we're getting the word out that we have these amazing resources, which we're able to help people with through our research center.
0: That means the Museum of Flights collections are open to you. Yes, you, dear listener. If you think you are not someone who would be allowed to see our collection, you're wrong. You are just the person we'd love to hear from. That's why in the introduction to this whole miniseries, I said this is your collection as much as anyone's. Whoever you might be, wherever in the world you might be, we want you to know that we hold onto these items for the public good, which means making sure the public can see them and use them for research. Whether that research is for a PhD thesis or an elementary school project or a book or to fill in the gaps of your family's history, or just to state your curiosity about the world around you.
3: Our researchers run the gamut from elementary school students doing a class project to model makers, to people doing their own family histories, to professional historians, to documentary filmmakers, to just people that said, hey, you know, I heard that my uncle was a pilot once and I found this picture. Can you help me figure out what kind of plane it is? You know, anything and everything. My predecessor, Dan Hagedorn, had a um, a phrase that he loved to use. It's like enthusiasts welcome here. So you you don't have to be a professional. You don't have to be an expert in aviation or aerospace. You just need to be enthusiastic about wanting to learn or to see something from our collection.
0: And artifacts like the Michael Collins ivory elephant show just how wide-reaching the stories of our collection can be.
1: We here within the United States often think of the Apollo program as a U.S. thing. But there are a lot of stories out of the Apollo program that really speak to like a global diversity. Aboard this U.S. flight sort of... Stowing away is this piece of Hindu culture from from India as part of an astronaut's personal preference kit. And there are several stories like that from the Apollo program, both very much intentional as well as less intentional. And, and some of them, for instance, are uh, there was a, a prayer group that flew uh, the entire text of King James Bibles on like microfilm scanned down to these tiny, tiny fragments and, and flew those to the moon on several Apollo missions. There was also um, uh, one of the astronauts, I think it might've been from Apollo 15, one of the later missions, wanted to be able to deliver sort of g- greetings and messages of welcome to the world in multiple different languages. And so he worked with folks to be able to, to say these greetings and phrases in these multiple languages as part of his flight. It really kind of speaks to the, the global, the human achievement versus the American achievement of, of the Apollo program.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Join us for the next episode in this mini series, where we will be looking at the biggest artifact in our collection. I hope to have it out in two weeks to stay on our every other week schedule, but I have to be honest, it may be delayed as we work under very unusual conditions due to the COVID-19 outbreak. I appreciate understanding. And I'll also make a pitch, you know, if you have the capacity to give to a nonprofit like the Museum of Flight, but if if not us, then any nonprofit that's close to your heart. I can only say that right now uh, your gift will be so incredibly appreciated. You can learn more about accessing the collection, including how to explore our digital collections from the comfort of your socially isolated home in this episode's show notes. Even now as the museum operates with a skeleton crew, while we remain closed due to the outbreak, you can still check out these digital collections. Regular listeners to the flight deck will know that this episode is a departure from our usual format. And as you might imagine, this took this took so much work, folks. It took a lot of work. That's why I'm asking, especially today, that if you like what you heard, please take a moment and spread the word. Share a link to the podcast on social media, send it out via email to folks who you might think enjoy it. As this episode is released, most of the country is undergoing some level of social isolation, and hopefully this story can be a bright spot in someone's day. You can contact the show via email at podcast at And you can rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download us from. Until next time, this is your host Sean Mobley saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks.